Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the History Today podcast. In this episode, the Nazi-Soviet Pact. Roger Morehouse is the author of The Devil's Alliance, Hitler's Pact with Stalin, 1939 to 1941, which is out now. In the September issue of History Today, he's written an article about a German cruiser that became a ship of the Soviet Union and what it reveals about the nature of the pact. He speaks here to History Today deputy editor Charlotte Crowe. I want to start first, Roger, if I may, by asking you to talk a little bit about the pact itself, the Nazi-Soviet pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact as it's known. It's the 75th anniversary this year and a lot of people won't know an awful lot about it. Could you just give us an outline about why it's so crucial? Of course. Uh, The pact itself was just uh, yet another non-aggression pact. Um, there were many of them signed in the 1930s. It was uh, very much the spirit of the age to sign a non-aggression pact with your neighbour. Uh, what made this pact so surprising was that it was between Berlin and Moscow. It was between Hitler's Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union, two countries that had spent most of the previous few years insulting one another, often in the most uh, 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 outlandish terms. Um, now, in itself, that's what, that's what the Nazi-Soviet pact was. So it was just a non-aggression pact. Both sides agreed not to go to war with one another and to settle their differences by negotiation. But what's important about the pact, and this is what I go into in the book, is that it was the opening act of an ongoing relationship, and a relationship that lasted for almost two years, uh, which was in many ways... Um, uh, very much uh, the same as an alliance. It wasn't a formal alliance, but it had many aspects which made it very close to an alliance. So that was the opening act in a relationship which included, for example, four economic treaties, uh, another, a further political treaty, um, and of course the secret protocol, which is quite well known, the secret protocol to this pact, by which Hitler and Stalin divided up Eastern Europe between the two. Even from that very brief outline, um, it should be clear that uh, this is actually a, a, a very important aspect of World War II. It's not just, you know, seven chapters or seven, sorry, seven paragraphs of a treaty. Uh, this is actually the opening of a very important relationship uh, in World War II. Um, and what, in your view, was the motivation behind the pact, especially for Stalin? Um, you mentioned the economic thing and the territorial carve-up that both sides had in mind, obviously. 
Um, Hitler's, Hitler's um, motivation is, is probably the most obvious, and it's more or less the one that we all understand it to be. Yeah. Um, Hitler had effectively painted himself into a bit of a strategic corner uh, by the late summer of 1939. Um, and in a sense, the Nazi-Soviet pact was the uh, a way for him to get out of that problem, out of that impasse that he, that he found himself in, because it solved the problem of Poland. Poland was refusing to negotiate. Uh, it wasn't going to allow itself to be in any way uh, partitioned or, 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 or parceled up in the way that Czechoslovakia had been the previous autumn. So it was holding firm against Hitler, not allowing him to to uh, undermine it in sort of diplomatic ways. Um, so he was painted into a corner, and in a sense, for him, the Nazi-Soviet pact was a short-term solution to solve the problem of Poland, and it also, of course, solved the, the problem that he potentially faced in the event of war, which was that the British would, uh, as we did indeed try and do, um, use the weapon of the blockade against Germany. Mm -hmm. And if he has access to the, the material, raw material riches of the Soviet Union and beyond, um, he, uh, as part of that arrangement, he has a way around the, the traditional Brit British weapon of the blockade. So from Hitler's perspective, it's pretty clear um, you know, that the, the conventional interpretation is more or less correct. What I think is more, much more interesting and much more important, uh, you know, as this book shows, um, is that Stalin's, and Stalin's motivations are rather different from how they are, how they are generally understood. Uh, conventionally, Stalin uh, is understood to have you know, his motivation is defensive. So he is holding off Hitler um, in the knowledge that there will be an attack at some point. He is holding Hitler off, buying himself time, um, you know, making this unnatural alliance because he knows he's, at some point he's going to be attacked. So it's essentially defensive in nature. That's the traditional interpretation. Yes. That's the interpretation that Stalin himself gave uh, after the war, immediately after the German attack in, uh, in uh, June 1941. Um, the truth, I think, is rather more complex. There's a, uh, I think the Soviet Union is much more aggressive in its attention, uh, intentions in 1939 in making the pact. What I would suggest is that this is another chapter in the Soviet Union's efforts to effectively move west, to project itself and project its ideology westwards. This, of course, the Soviets had tried in 1920 uh, with the invasion of Poland. Um, they tried again and did very successfully in the aftermath of World War II, projecting communism all the way to the heart of Europe and the heart of Germany. Um, so in a sense, I think it makes sense for us to see 1939 in the same way, is that Stalin is effectively turning Hitler westwards um, in the hope that Hitler would destroy not only himself, but also the Western imperialists in mm -hmm. you know, some grand climactic battle uh, on the Western Front, after which Stalin is free to, to march west. I think that seems to be a logical um, explanation for Stalin's thinking, and indeed it's borne out. He says as much uh, as does Molotov. This is the this is the thinking that they are um, going into the pact with in 1939. And you and you controversially suggest that uh, in the failure of the pact, the Soviets were more damaged. You know, at the end of the, at the event, the Soviets were much more damaged by the connection because of the impact on the the indelible stain on communism, as you put it. Uh, I, I I think. I think so. I think 1939 really has to um, rank as one of the sort of great red-letter years, if you like, in the history of communism, along with 1956, 1968, and 
there were suicides amongst you know the wider communist movement because of the Nazi Soviet pact. It's hard to imagine now, uh, but that was the case. So this was a massive shock for loyal communists throughout the world who had to sort of come to terms with, you know, and tell themselves that Stalin, Stalin knew better. Stalin knew what he was doing. We just have to trust him. Um, and many people just couldn't take that on board, that he would, he would uh, align himself uh, with Hitler, who he'd been proclaiming to be his arch enemy. Um, so it, this, this was something, I think, that, that profoundly damaged the communist cause uh, up until 1941. Of course, Hitler's attack on the Soviet Union in June 1941, uh, in a sense, things. allows communism to redeem itself mm-hmm. by being uh, at the forefront of that of that uh, uh, battle, of that defence, and that subsequent battle against Nazism. So, in a sense, communism was thereby allowed to redeem itself and did so. And though by that stage there had been a massive amount of bloodshed, hadn't there? Part of the um, the story that is traditionally neglected. I mean, we have. Certainly in the West, we have a, a traditional overarching narrative of World War II as one of the grand alliance of the, of the British and the, uh, uh, the Americans and the French and Joe Stalin and the Soviet Union being allies in defeating Nazi Germany. And of course, that sort of whitewashes the fact that for the opening two years of the war almost, Stalin was not our ally, he was actually our enemy, and he was very much closer to being Hitler's ally than our own. Um, and of course, in that period, Stalin moves westward. Uh, in in concert with or in agreement with with Hitler, uh, annexes the Baltic states, uh, has a very short, nasty war with Finland in the winter of 1939-40, and of course annexes um, eastern Poland and occupies east, eastern Poland. And in the process of that, millions of people are deported to uh, uh, to uh, Siberia mm. and, and the less hospitable hospitable parts of the Soviet Union, uh, and. Many thousands are killed as well. Not, I mean, the most famous example being the Katyn massacres of 1940. So there's huge amounts of bloodshed involved in this period as well, which, again, traditionally doesn't really find its way into the conventional narrative. Um, I know the article that you've written for History Today um, focuses specifically on the econ- an economic aspect of the pact, and perhaps we should talk a little bit about that now. You tell the story of the Lutzow, which is a, a German heavy cruiser delivered to Leningrad in May 1940, and... I mean, you tell the story in rather an amusing way, actually, even though the subject is deeply serious. Mm. It is. I mean, it's a fascinating story. Again, uh, it's one that uh, doesn't sort of, because of what it is, it doesn't find a place in the narrative. So it was something that I sort of came across and, and researched uh, as, as thoroughly as I could. And it, and it is a fascinating story. Um, the Germans were, were, were not exactly awash with capital ships. Uh, in 1939, of course, they they lost one in the or 1940. They they lost one in the um, uh, Norwegian campaign um, and lost the the Graf Speer, of course, down in uh, the South Atlantic in 1939. So they were losing ships uh, at this point as well. Um, and the Lutzel, which hadn't actually been finished, it was it was um, sort of com- completed up to it been launched and had completed in, in its essentials, but didn't have its superstructures by that point. Um, was part of the economic deal that the Germans had with the Soviets on the back of the Nazi-Soviet pact, um, and was sold to Stalin uh, and delivered, as you say, in in the spring of 1940. Um, there are several ironies attached to the delivery, aren't there? And there are, I mean, very much. Because, as I say, I mean, the, the Germans were not exactly awash with capital ships, so the fact that they were uh, sending one of their sort of precious uh, capital ships to their later enemy is rather is rather surprising. Also, the class of heavy cruiser um, of which the Lutzel was one, which was the Admiral Hipper class, 
had actually been developed in the mid-1930s as a response to the Soviet Kirov class of cruiser. So, you know, in a sense, it was being uh, delivered to its, uh, to, its, to its own enemy. It's yes. quite a peculiar story yes. in that respect as well. Um, and the idea was that the, the Lutzel, uh, which the, the Soviets renamed the Petropavlovsk, um, would be fitted out by Soviet uh, workmen and engineers under German supervision. Uh, and that sort of progressed rather haltingly, that whole process uh, was rather difficult, but it reflected the wider you know, difficulties of the pact, actually, of the, of the relationship. Um, and it didn't sort of progress terribly well. By the end, by the, by the summer of 1941, uh, it was sort of parked in a, in a, uh, a dock in Leningrad and actually was, it, was then involved in the, uh, the defense of Leningrad against the Germans uh, in the, the late summer of 1941. So... You know, peculiarly, this German-built ship, which was moored in, in Leningrad Harbor, was then firing German-made shells at the Germans. Uh, so there, there are numerous ironies involved in the whole, the whole story. And there are some interesting aspects, such as um, the, the concerns about spying, in which um, the industrialist uh, Gustav Krupp was involved, wasn't mm. he? Um, it's quite an interesting part of this, this, uh, this story of the economic relationship, is that the Soviets appear to have treated the whole exercise as an, as a, an opportunity for, for uh, you know, industrial-scale industrial spying. Um, and sent you know, large delegations of, of buyers west um, to essentially inspect every single uh, German industrial installation that they could get their hands on, which was most. I mean, the Germans were, were very uh, surprisingly accommodating in that respect. Uh, and the German... Uh, Delegations were not uh, given reciprocal rights in the Soviet Union, peculiarly. So the, the Soviets were very cagey about allowing, uh, um, you know, German industrialists back. and technological experts into their own uh, installations. Um, so there were widespread suspicions from early on, even from the, on the German side, that the Soviets were were just using this as an opportunity to spy on them. Uh, and so much so that even uh, you know, when delegations went to Krupp, for example, um, they would sort of. Uh, Shield off most of the most of the the workshop halls with with enormous tarpaulins, so that it's the delegation a, couldn't see what was going on in the rest of the hall. They are only allowed to see the. It's bits. most bizarre but, to think about that, isn't it? A whole sort of tenting out effect. And there's a peculiar uh, episode with um, an admiral who is supposedly nominally the admiral who was sent to oversee the whole sitting out. Um, uh, exercise, and he was involved in a in a in a peculiar sort of honey trap. Um, by the NKVD, the Soviet secret police, um, who you know sent a, a young lady to meet him, and he was then seduced, and, and photographic evidence was produced, uh, essentially with the, with the aim that he was to you know turn and, and, and be be induced to spy for the NKVD. Um, the problem being that the, that said German admiral was not in the slightest bit bothered by his um, <laughs> by his indiscretion. Uh, and sort of, you know, was rather brazen and, and, and said, so what? So um, I, we're coming to the end now, but um, by 1940, you know, the agreement had begun to uh, unravel with uh, Barbarossa on the horizon. Mm. Um, it is quite late, actually. It's later than I think we generally um, think it is. It's much, uh, it's really the end, it's December 1940, at which point uh, Hitler orders the preparation of Barbarossa. Um and the problem being that uh, Stalin had sh demonstrated and shown ambition uh, to still move west 
you know, he was still trying to um, exercise influence westwards. And this is something that, that, that Hitler couldn't tolerate. And actually, the thing that seems to have provoked that final decision to give the order for Barbarossa was comparatively a sort of strategic sideshow. It was actually what was, what was known as the Danubian Commission. It was a, a regional talking shop which uh, you know, discussed um, rules and regulations around the Danube. Uh, and what upset Hitler was the uh, obstructionist attitude of the Soviets at the Danubian Commission uh, meeting that autumn, which actually broke up in, in acrimony in, in mid-December. And the day after it breaks up is the day that he orders um, the, the attack on the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So there's a sort of clear link um, that his, this frustration with, with Stalin's continued ambitions westwards is what actually is for him the final straw. There's no doubt that, that Hitler you know, always had the ambition that he wanted to attack the Soviet Union, occupy a large area of the Soviet Union. Uh, but it seems that the final straw for him was that Danubian Commission meeting, which again is a part of the story that, we, that generally doesn't find a place in the narrative. No, and it's, it's written about in great masterfully researched work in your book, and the article completes the story for our, for our history today. So... Um... What was initially a tragedy of non-aggression ended in an act of aggression, and I urge people to, to read the article and pick up your book. Thanks very much, Roger. Thank you.